But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Jesus. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Thanks, Margaret. It's good. We're on. Can I say uh, one of the what I'm seeing now is one of the most beautiful, beautiful things at the bay is with people with the Bible open in front of them. So if you don't have a Bible open, or if you've got an electronic device, you can uh, uh, open up and use that with a Bible on it. Then please do, as we'll be referring to that passage. Just imagine for Peter if he was to draw a timeline of significant conversations in his life that were part of him uh, becoming a full-blown Christian. I reckon these words, this conversation with Jesus, uh, would be among the top two or three. Got me thinking, and here's a a bit of a job for you, a bit of homework over over lunch, as we share lunch together. Um, What would you say have been the sort of top, I don't know, two or three significant conversations, you know, well-timed words uh, in your life that really had a fair bit to do with well, you being here today, uh, for those of us who are here thinking of themselves as Christian, um, for you actually being a Christian, uh, significant conversations that maybe people have had. What I want to do today, I've been thinking a lot about you know, what, to, what to speak on, and this passage takes us to the heart of, uh, of Jesus, why he came, who he is, what it means to be a Christian, how do you become a Christian, and just... As I step back from uh, the content of this passage, uh, the simple truth sort of hit home of just uh, here is Jesus initiating and to have a, an incredibly significant conversation uh, with Peter and his disciples. Uh, and as we all know, uh, there is an art to it, asking the right question at the right time. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks. Seems harmless. Uh, and then... As we heard, Peter's world, the disciples' world, gets turned upside down. The last few weeks, um, we've got a bathroom renovation going on and a few other things uh, in our lives, just part of the, you know, the, uh, um, yeah, living life in this world. But I've had more than a few opportunities to uh, share something of um, uh, how I became a Christian, why I'm a Christian, uh, with my builder, the guys who rendered the wall, um, and just other people out and about uh, in, in shops and things as well. And it's got me thinking about uh, at least four significant conversations, four significant moments in my life um, in standing here today as a Christian, how I became one. And really, I think they're significant uh, for us all uh, because they're, um, they're in this passage here. And the first one, it's these four C's. It's very simple. There's, if you're into outlines... Uh, there's four C's. The first one is courage. Okay, courage. Um, and 
I've been reflecting on this. It's a consistent thing as part of my story. Uh, take you back to 92 in a small dark office, uh, very small, two metres by one metre, um, in the, in the uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital. I'd just come off an all-nighter. I was handing over uh, to the day registrar. She'd been my first boss when I'd started working as an intern. And for a while, uh, my conscience, for a number of weeks actually, my conscience had been sort of pricking and poking me, you know, that sort of inner voice that these things aren't right, um, yet there's turbulence, you're restless uh, on a number of fronts. Um, And I managed to work out it had to do with sort of seeing people die in front of me in hospital, losing my first grandparent, uh, realising that, um, you know, working and, and having money to spend isn't all it's cut out to be. Um, and getting out of uni and, um, uh, and just, I guess, moral inconsistencies in my life as well. It's all these things just sort of like throwing up a, a storm inside. No one would have known uh, to look at me. Um, but anyway, after sort of handover that morning, I found myself sharing a bit about how I was feeling. Uh, and then that registrar said something very unsuspecting, uh, told me she was a Christian, said that um, she thought life was all about having Jesus at the centre Uh, And that's where you find life and meaning. And if I wanted to really get to the bottom and find answers to those sort of things I was wrestling with, I had to have a good look at Jesus. Um, She followed it up with an invitation to church uh, um, in a Holy Trinity city to the 7pm gathering, uh, which um, she was a registrar, I was an intern. The invitation, of course, wasn't an invitation. It was just being told what I had to do, so I did it. Um, Anyway... Uh, as I've reflected on that, uh, that morning, that conversation, I just think, you know, just, you know, that conversation could have gone a few ways, you know. Um, been in a hospital a few months, like I knew how busy this registrar was and, and could have just, oh, too busy, no, I'll just, yeah, I could say this, but I won't, I've got stuff I've got to do. Or, oh, no, look, I, you know, last thing I want to do is let everyone know that, you know, I'm, out, I'm an out-and-out Christian and stuff. What could it mean for my career, the fears and all that sort of stuff? What might, what might people say? Those sorts of things. But uh, just the care and the courage shown during uh, that conversation, uh, I realised that that was the first significant conversation that God used to change my life forever. That is, I wouldn't be standing here saved if that busy registrar hadn't uh, taken the time uh, and the courage to put Jesus squarely uh, on the agenda and and come out as a Christian. And it uh, it happened at work. I wasn't expecting it. I'm sure the reg wasn't expecting it uh, during the handover. Um, And, and of course, most of you already know that such is God's sense of humour that registrars in the room as my wife... um, after become a Christian, we got married a long, well, I don't know how many, 18 months after, after that conversation, I reckon. But um, I was sort of thinking, you know, it's just actually just appropriate day like today that I'm only here. Um, if I hadn't been become a Christian, who knows whether Trinity Bay would be here, probably a, a different church somewhere else, maybe a better church, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but just, I think it, it's sort of a, a big part of today. It actually began just with the, the sort of the courage uh, of, that, of that person. So... Um, it's appropriate I say thank you for your courage, Gita. Uh, as you know, Gita um, has the knack of saying what needs to be said. So uh, if you know Gita, and I'm very thankful uh, to have you uh, on my side. But Paul says in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news. And uh, of course, they were some beautiful feet. I didn't realise it at the time. 
uh, but you know, just that shared the, the good news with me and threw out that invitation. But what about for you? Uh, again, is there a significant conversation, maybe a, a few, that you know you think, you know, well, yeah, actually, God did use that person's words to sort of change my thinking about this or to change the direction of my life, um, and and that's just how God works. God speaks and saves through the Bible. Uh, as people hear and understand the good news of Jesus, he does that by the power of his spirit through ordinary people, ordinary people, uh, just having a go at putting Jesus into the conversation when those opportunities arrive. And as I said, it's an appropriate day for, I think, all of us maybe to remember if there are um, some people um, God's used for you, just to be thankful for those people. You might want to let them know. Um, certainly give thanks to God for them. Well, from courage we come to Christ. As I said, the key thing that Gita did that morning is she actually made it about Jesus. Made it about Jesus. And, uh, and I guess just to say that nothing's changed. Uh, if you're here this morning, you know, if you're aware there's a restlessness, a turbulence, you know, you're thinking, got to be more to life. I do have questions, fears around death, uh, around what life is all about. Um, then the answer really is Jesus. uh, He's the answer to those questions, uh, to those fears, those anxieties and yearnings that you have. And so that brings us to the passage. uh, And Jesus had the knack of putting himself always in the middle of conversations uh, in chapter 8. And as I said, as we come to that second C, Christ, this whole series, uh, the most important question you can ever grapple with is this one. Who is Jesus? And in particular, who do you say? Like in your heart of hearts, who do you say Jesus is? Just look with me at verse 27. We'll just refresh our um, memories here. Jesus and his disciples, they went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. That is, Jesus' contemporaries, their Jewish contemporaries, they're familiar with the Old Testament. They had hopes, they had expectations that God was going to do something, send his king, send a saviour. They think Jesus is someone important, perhaps one of the greats from the Bible um, who God has um, uh, raised and brought back from the dead. But again, they're not... I don't know, try it this week. Ask, just ask five people randomly. You know, who do you reckon Jesus is? I suspect no one's going to say, well, I think he was John the Baptist, you know. Um, that is, that's not how people think. It's not where they go with this question, is it? Oh, I don't know, he's a good bloke, I guess. He sort of said and did a few good things and helped people and, and that. But, you know, more and more people I talk to, I mean, they've got no idea. Um, they really are not at all familiar um, and had any contact with Christians. Um, they've got no idea and actually they don't care. Um, they uh, are sort of getting on, living their life, and uh, whether they don't care because they're just not, not wanting to sort of grapple with these things, who knows? But the, the key thing that Jesus does here, of course, is in verse 29, when he turns to those who have been um, following him and, if you like, uh, following his cause for about 18 months now, he asks them, he says, who do you say? That I am, and of course Peter's answer: "You are the Christ." Uh, it's the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, uh, which means uh, King, God's anointed, uh, set apart King. 
And it brings a question for us. Uh, Why is Jesus so concerned uh, about this question, about who who he is? And and why does it matter that we actually sort of get it right? Um, Because it's sort of weird. Peter gets it right, but then he gets it wrong. Um, Why is it so important? To, to sort of grapple with who Jesus is. Is he from God? Is he God? Or is he just a human being who thought he was God? Was he misguided? Was he crazy? Who is Jesus? Over the last 10 years, I've run um, a good number uh, of, of groups um, called Simply Christianity. Uh, it's a chance to get together for about six weeks over, over food and we read through Luke's Gospel and we look at the sort of nuts and bolts of Jesus. You get to ask any question you want. Anyway, the, the second um, thing we look at in that course is Jesus' identity. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? And one of the stories I use to illustrate uh, why this question matters so much has to do with um, some boys who uh, hopped on the local bus uh, one evening and they hopped on, there was four or five of them, they were sort of feeling mischievous. Uh, there was only one other bloke on the bus, an older guy, he happened to be Afro, Afro, um, Afro-American. Um, anyway, they started paying this guy out. Um, and then as the bus went along, it got more and more uh, seriously paying him out and almost sort of picking a fight. Um, these are sort of teenager lads. Anyway, and this guy didn't react. Anyway, bus stopped, he gets up. Uh, goes up to the boys, uh, he stands up and they realise, hmm, he's a bit bigger than what we thought. And, uh, uh, and he just sort of, just calmly sort of pulls out and gives them a card, his business card. And, the, and he hopped off the bus and the boys looked at the card and it was like, Joe Lewis, professional boxer. Um, uh, and, it, you know, it's meant to be a true story, but it just illustrates well, it just really pays to know who you're dealing with. Um, and understanding who you're dealing with uh, it really does affect um, how you're going to respond to them. Uh, the last thing you want to do is misjudge someone and get your response wrong. It means either you can miss out completely on the benefits that they're offering or uh, it can actually put you in deep trouble and on the wrong side of their favours. Now, I want to suggest these teenage lads were pretty lucky that night. Um, but many things have changed in 10, ten years. Uh, I've finally listened to Helen Keane. He's been bugging me for five years to get new glasses. Um, she's not even here to, to sort of see it. She hasn't said anything, you know. Uh, I can't believe it. I'm just gutted. But anyway, uh, I was forced to because I just couldn't read anything. I mean, this long-sighted thing. It just it, When it happens, it happens really quickly. But um, I've aged, and um, one thing hasn't changed in 10 years. Christianity has always and will always be about one thing, responding appropriately to Jesus. That's it. That's what Christianity is. Responding appropriately to Jesus, who he is and because of what he's done. You see, if Jesus went around handing out business cards, it would have said Jesus the Christ. Of course, it's not his surname, it's a title. Jesus the King. Uh, probably in brackets, in smaller print, Uh, the one who has arrived with all of God's authority and power and who should be listened to and heeded. Brings us to that third C, um, which is the cross. And 
of course, that's where Jesus goes. Uh, no sooner does Peter say, you're the Christ, than we're told uh, that Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's the Christ. Why does Jesus start teaching straight away about his cross? Well, because you are never going to get Jesus' identity right if you do not understand his cross. It's impossible. You will always respond wrongly to Jesus as the Christ if you do not understand what Jesus is saying here. He speaks plainly. Uh, The word is literally courage. Jesus courageously spoke to them about what must happen. What must happen, he says. That little word must, um, again in the the original language, uh, it's easy to remember. It sounds like day, like day is today. Uh, Tomorrow is another day. It's spelled a bit differently, D-E-I, but... It's, it's a word that means it is necessary, like absolutely necessary. Uh, and it's called what they call a divine must. That is, it's a God must. God says, this is absolutely necessary. It's like Jesus saying, I don't have a choice, actually. This must happen out of my hands. Why does he say that? It's interesting, we often beat around the bush, try to soften the blow, when we have to have a difficult conversation with someone, um, we you know, work out, oh, do I really need to say that or not? Um, you know, who likes conflict? You don't like creating conflict, I don't like it. Uh, but you know, we've all been there. Sometimes it, you just sort of need to say what needs to be said. We're reminded by Jesus here that even for him, as it is for us. It always takes great courage to speak plainly about the cross because it's not Jesus, but it's actually the cross that people find offensive. When they come to understand the cross, why Jesus died, why he said he must die, what was happening on the cross, there's only ever one of two reactions. People are really turned off that, the, what you're saying and often turned off of you as well. Or they do want to explore further. They actually are attracted to what is going, uh, to what Jesus had to say about the cross. And I think Peter's reaction highlights just how offensive the idea of suffering, a suffering saviour, what that means. Just how far off the mark Peter was. They'd signed on to follow a king who they thought would um, lead a military coup. Uh, one of the most famous political uprisings in history, kick out the Romans, re-establish Israel uh, as a safe and sovereign nation, prosperous again. That's why these guys are signed on. Jesus, what? You can't die. You're meant to be leading a political cue, uh, uh, you know, uh, a sort of political rebellion here. And of course, the reason that the cross is offensive has to do with why Jesus died. Why Jesus died. 
It's that the idea that my sin is so offensive to God that I could only be saved, only be forgiven by God through the suffering and death of God's own Son. It's offensive to those who heard it then. It's offensive to people who hear that message today. As uncomfortable and hard to hear the plain preaching about Jesus and his death. The first time I walked into Holy Trinity Adelaide, I didn't know what to expect back in 92. I realised how critical it was God getting me, if you like, to second base. You know, if becoming a Christian is a bit like sort of, you know, first base, second base, third base and then home plate. Um, First base, first base was that courageous conversation putting Christ on the agenda. Second base is the cross and why it's a must. Why it was a must. First base, as I said, introduced to Jesus. Second base, um, why Jesus had to die. And it's necessary because it's only ever been God's one plan, if you like, one necessary plan. It's here in the Bible as Jesus goes on to teach his disciples. There's no other plan for Jesus, never has been. This is Jesus' one and only mission, to die for the sins of people like you and I. If you just turn back in your Bibles to chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 14. Actually, no, chapter 7, verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6, here we go. Um, Jesus himself tells us what the real problem is that he came to fix here. The context is... um, The religious leaders, they had all these rituals and rules about cleanliness. The disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat and and keeping the sort of the, you know, making the food and everything unclean that they were touching, supposedly. Uh, The religious leaders are pretty upset uh, with with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, And then Jesus responds um, to their grumbling with these words in verse 6. Isaiah the prophet, who spoke 800 years before Jesus, he was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Just flick down to verse 17. Again, Jesus helpfully explains uh, to his disciples what he's saying. After Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it goes into their heart, for it doesn't go into their heart. Still getting used to my glasses, I'm sorry. All right? So it doesn't go, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, what makes people unclean before God or unacceptable to God? What's the things that innately are inside of us and come out of us. They're the same. Look, this list of things, aren't they the same things that frustrate our relationships? (laughs) We get frustrated with ourselves about not even living up to our own sort of standards and 
uh, let alone sort of the expectations of others. See, why is it that, I, that I've never ever had to teach my kids growing up the word no? Um, why is it I haven't had to teach my kids how to, you know, tell little porkies or, um, you know, be, be selfish or deceptive? Because they've had a pretty good teacher in me, I reckon. Not you, Gita, in me. Um, but, you know, it's true, isn't it? We, we just sort of know these things. Um, they're all symptoms of a core problem where we've actually um, exchanged out the reality of God in the centre of our lives. Uh, and we, we, we're sort of putting non-God things in there. Our natural reflex is to pursue dreams and, and try and find security and significance and happiness in things that aren't God. I mentioned this um, in, in January. This is one of the books I read, this sort of counterfeit gods here. And at, at, in the opening chapter, Tim uh, Keller, he asks a really cool question. He says, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? As a human being, what's the worst thing that could happen to you in life? Probably thinking of quite a few things that have maybe. But this is what he says. Most people spend their lives trying to make their hearts fondest dreams come true. Isn't that what life is all about? The pursuit of happiness? We search endlessly for ways to acquire the things we desire and we're willing to sacrifice much to achieve them. We never imagine that getting our hearts to set deepest desires might be the worst thing that can ever happen to us goes on to share story after story of people who did get their heart's deepest desires and how it ended up destroying them. But it's true, isn't it? You know, you save up for that holiday or for that, oh, you know, that thing you've been wanting to buy for months or years and, you know, you're excited and then you get to use it or whatever and then there's sort of, I don't know, just the the gloss of it, it just sort of wears out a bit Um, and you're sort of back to square one. All Tim Keller is doing here is paraphrasing what God has told us in the Bible, like Adam and Eve did, as first human beings in the garden. So we can't help ourselves. We're born like them. We follow in their footsteps. Uh, our natural reflex is to always exchange God out and put other things in. Now, here's the thing. As I sat in uh, a seat in Trinity, a city that night in 92... Of all the things the preacher explained about Jesus and his cross, uh, this is the one thing I actually found myself reluctantly nodding to, thinking, you know, actually, uh, uh, this, he's describing me, actually. He's describing me pretty well. Here I was, a 25-year-old, trying to find life and meaning and significance in things that aren't God. The Bible teaches from cover to cover that the wage you and I deserve for failing to love and honour and serve God properly. That wage is death. It's our mortality. It's why we die. The Bible also tells us what's going to happen when we die. That God has appointed every person to die once and after that comes judgment. After that, we will all stand before Jesus and will be audited, will be judged. We won't have to say anything because a bit like here in Mark 7, Jesus knows. He'll see it all and he'll see it truly. I'm wondering, are you ready for that conversation yet? It can only go one of two ways. 
It brings us to Jesus' questions there in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. Where Jesus says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Don't know what you thought about that. Um, Don't know if you're thinking of rocking up to heaven with some bargaining chips thinking it's all going to be okay? See, Jesus asks the question knowing there's no amount of money, no amount of good things you can do, church going, reading your Bible, having communion, whatever, you know, helping people. These aren't the things that can make us acceptable to God. You or I can never give enough or do enough to buy or to earn our way into heaven to earn acceptance with God. If justice is to be done, if God is to be God and if the debt that you and I owe God is to be cleared, there needs to be a death. That's why God gave the sacrificial system to the Jews, to remind them day in and day out, week in, week out, that for sin to be forgiven, there needs to be a death, a sacrifice. Of course, Animals don't take away sin. Uh, It was to point them to what God was going to do in Jesus. But human beings were in an impossible situation, according to the Bible. The grave will swallow us up in the end. And left to our own resources, there is no way we can escape that mortality or we can escape the judgment of God. Now, these are some of the second base truths about, if you like, why Jesus had to die that I found myself grappling with on that first night. Um, Being confronted and I think beginning to be convicted that I was one of these sinners, that I fell way, way short um, of loving and honouring God. The application is pretty simple. Um, like, Like a game of baseball, there is no getting to third base without first getting to second base. Uh, You and I, we deserve to be on death row with the rest of humanity. And if we're going to comprehend the mystery, the majesty of Jesus' death, if we're going to um, discover why he really is such a beautiful saviour, you've got to think deeply and be convinced, utterly convinced about what the Bible says about our standing before God, about why Jesus said he must die and it matters because it's the only way you're ever going to be able to stop trying to prove yourself to God Uh, you know know those silly religious games or mental arithmetic games we play with God I've had a bad week I better read my Bible more or I haven't been to church for a while I should do that or now these are good things to do but doing them as if somehow you're you know, this scales and you're somehow making up for having a bad week or whatever, um, that, is, that is not biblical Christianity at all. That's religion. The only way you're going to be able to stop playing those games is to discover the real grace of Jesus for your life. You've got to be convinced about being someone um, before God. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, nothing. Nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. Which brings us to talk about the beautiful exchange that did happen on the cross. So what did Jesus' cross achieve? 
And um, why, why, why does it make Jesus such a beautiful saviour? Now, 10 years, a lot of things have changed. Fads have come and gone. I'm a big believer that PowerPoint is a fad. Some teaching aids will never change. So we're going to go to the whiteboard. Um, best, best teaching tool invented, I reckon. So, Because uh, you don't get that screeching with the chalk. You know, school, I grew up with chalk. It just drove, drove me nuts. So here is, I've just started to map out. Cross, Jesus is on a cross. Uh, we've got us and we've got God. Okay, uh, what did the cross achieve? Someone ran this through with me in those first months when I was trying to work out Jesus. And I'm just so thankful they did. I'm a bit of a visual person because suddenly I understood just how, how majestic um, the cross is. Uh, what, thousands of people were crucified in Jesus' day. Thousands of people. Why is Jesus' crucifixion so unique? What makes his death um, so special that, you know, 2,000 years, people have worn a cross, you know, the most horrible way a person could be killed. They've worn a cross around their neck. Why is that? It's got to do with this. Jesus Christ to us and Jesus Christ to God. I thought there had to be some gaps uh, as well. I learnt two words. I learnt two words. So what's our big problem? between God is we we have this debt that is so big Uh, we deserve to die Uh, the debt of our sin um, it needs to be paid off it paid off now has anyone stick your hand up if you've never received one of these notices stick your hand up if you've never received one of these notices an expiation notice anyone from a council yeah, James, too young to drive. Okay, it's good. Young drivers, it's good. Stay safe. Uh, you know, you park in the wrong place, red light, speeding. You get this little white slip. It says, hypothetically, uh, it says expiation notice, expiation notice. And um, this word's in the Bible, and it means, we know what it means, to expiate an offence, to pay off a debt. Jesus Christ, he's up there in our place as my substitute, as your substitute, uh, dying at the death in my place. In that his death, he is paying off every sin in my past, present and future. On the cross is Jesus paying off every sin in eternity for everyone who call upon him as their saviour. Jesus to us, he's paying off a debt. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, free gift of God is eternal life. What Jesus is doing, he does it freely, voluntarily. Nothing more for me to contribute. Mark 10.45, teaching James and John who want a piece of the glory. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many, a ransom. That's what you pay to set someone free. Jesus is here paying the ransom that needs to be paid to set us free, to clear that debt. Pretty cool. Um, This is um, my favourite word in the Bible. Sounds like expiation. Propitiation. 
propitiation. Uh, again, only occurs twice in the New Testament, very significant places. Um, now, let's just say hypothetically, someone is very angry with you because you've done something wrong, okay? And you think, I deserve, they, I deserve for, this, for them to be angry with me. I've hurt them. I've offended them personally. Uh, they're angry and something needs to be done. But let's say someone then steps in your place uh, and takes, deals with that anger on your regard. That's what propitiation is. This is Jesus Christ on his cross to God for us, okay? God is rightly angry toward his creatures for the way we ignore him, for our sin, the way we rebel against him. He's angry. Here is Jesus turning all of God's anger for all of your sin on himself. He's satisfying it. He's exhausting God's anger. He takes it to his death. So for those people trusting in Jesus, it's impossible for God to ever be angry with you again. Now just think about that. Think about living living the rest of your days knowing that your maker will never ever can never ever be angry with you for anything unless you turn away from Jesus because that's what Jesus' cross does for us. Jesus says to James and John here that he came to drink a cup. These guys can't drink it. What is the cup? The cup God talks about in Isaiah. It's the, it's the cup foaming with God's wrath, with God's anger. Um, it's, it's why life is such a mess. And he says, but look, I'm going to come. I'm going to drink that cup for you. I'm going I'm to drain it. Which is exactly what these verses say here. So I'll read these out to you. Um, so 1 John 4.10. This is where uh, one of the two places where that word propitiation occurs. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see? God loved us. Not that we've loved God, but God loved us. And while we were still treating God like a block of wood, ignoring him, he sent his son to be a propitiation, to deal with God's anger that we deserve, to take it to the grave. 1 1 Peter 3.18, of course, John Mark, he probably learnt the gospel off of Peter. He's writing... Um, Peter's gospel for Christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God now over those four months these are the realities I came to realize and so four months after that first meeting I found myself on third base understanding the cross and wanting wanting to make it through to home plate if you like Uh, and to do that we've got to hear Jesus call which is where we finish And really is the application. Because what does Jesus say after he's taught them about the cross? He calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That is, die to trying to find life in this world. Take up your cross 
and follow Jesus. And of course, we don't make the cross that we take off. We don't invent it. We don't change it. That's the cross we take up. It's the cross that has done written across the top of it. Everything has been done for you so you can be forgiven and accepted. Done. That's the cross we're to take up. That's a pretty cool cross to take up. But of course, in taking up the goodness of the cross, and, and, and what a cross to take up. Forever forgiven. Living now assured of eternal life. It's also a cross of offence. Because it says to people, you're a sinner. You're a sinner and you need to turn, repent. You need to become a follower of Jesus if you want to be forgiven and saved. And it took four months for that process to happen for me. I started praying that prayer in about August 92 until someone told me that I could probably stop praying it now. Probably a Christian asking Jesus to be my Lord and Saviour. And it is as simple as telling Jesus, telling Jesus that you're sorry and you want him to save you, to come and live in the driver's seat of your life. And the privilege of the last 10 years has been preaching this message. Many of you teaching and sharing this message and seeing lives changed, people's destiny changed. Knowing that when you rock, you die and you rock up before Jesus and he goes, I know you, I know you, come on in. That's what we look forward to. And we also get to live now with the peace and the security, the knowledge that it's all done. You're forgiven. God loves you and living secure and certain where we'll spend eternity. As we finish, the question is a simple one. Have you heard Jesus' call? Do you understand why he died for you? What the cross, what he was doing on that cross for you? Have you heard his call? to come follow him, become a Christian. If you haven't done that yet, it's the best thing you could do today. For those of us who have been Christian for a while, we've, we've heard that call, we've prayed the prayer, living as a Christian. I think the challenge for us is um, to keep hearing that call. This is a call for every moment, every minute of every day for the rest of your life. Deny, take up, follow Jesus. The best... Uh, news about today is that on the other side of Adelaide, about 45 adults and kids have heard that call. Uh, They've made some tough choices. They've got together. They've started a new Bible teaching church out there. So the 11,000 people in Trinity, in in Golden Grove can have a chance uh, to to find out about Jesus. That's That's how we were started. And as we think about where to, how do we keep going and growing? Uh, it's just more of the same. Keep thinking deeply about this cross, how beautiful Jesus, this Saviour, is for you. And keep praying for God to help us to keep turning away, denying, taking up this cross and following after him. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you for the cross. Uh, We give thanks, Father, for those people in our lives who were courageous, put Jesus on our agenda. We give thanks for those who've taught us the truth about who Jesus is, 
about why he died on the cross, about what Jesus achieved on his cross for us. Father, thank you for your clear call. Clear call. Help us to hear your call, the call of your son this day and for every day as we go about our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.